what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the You're listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast with Nick Lyon, and this is a special podcast today for the heroes of the civil rights movement. I'm delighted to welcome Joel Goza. Have I said that right, Joel? Is that that is right. You got it on point. Great, Great. Joel Goza. So Joel is joining us from Houston in Texas, and he's an author, speaker, and community advocate, although he seems to have many other uh, feathers to his hat, so I'm sure he's going to tell us all about those as well. Um John's a former pastor, I believe. I am, yeah. yeah. Studied divinity um, and has worked in urban redevelopment and community activism for well over a decade. But the reason I'm talking to Joel, uh, Joel pardon me, is because I, uh, I spotted he'd written two fascinating books. So he's published one and the other one is, is coming out in the, in the near future, hopefully. And uh, Joel wrote to us uh, and uh, was was keen to talk and he's I'm glad he did because he's got an absolutely fascinating background and, and some really interesting arguments he's put forward in the first of his books which is called America's Unholy Ghosts the racist roots of our faith and politics and his second tome which he's working on right now is called Rebirth of a Nation at the moment Rebirth of a Nation Reparations and Making an Anti-Racist America so Joel, good to um, be with you today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for joining. Hope not hate. And um, if I'm mangling your your life and and, and curriculum vitae, please let me know. <laughs> yeah, not not beyond repair. Not beyond repair yet. So uh, <laughs> that's good. So <laughs> good. I mean, I'm excited to be with you. Perhaps we can start. Um, so so obviously we're looking at the uh, at the civil rights movement, but perhaps we can sure. start yeah. with you. And you, you did a very interesting uh, short video. Introduce on YouTube introducing your your first book America's Unholy Ghosts and just there was many noteworthy lines in, in that introduction to the book. Uh, one of the things you've written was as time passed, America's racial imagination evolved to form people incapable of recognizing their addiction to racist ideas. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, we can unpack that. You've also said something I picked up from your video, religious and political lies that racialize the American project. Uh, those, those become enshrined effectively, religious and political lines become enshrined in the American project um, and which racialize it. And you said, if the lies can be written, we have a responsibility to begin unwriting them. So Joel, can you just give us a little bit of intro to what you were saying there and, and sure, absolutely. we're about the crisis in modern America. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, part of uh, Americans and Holy Ghost is a response um, for me and, and comes out of my own life story in that, you know, I was raised uh, in the suburbs of Houston. Houston is a large town, you know, multi-million town. Um, but when I was a young adult, I moved into an inner city community uh, that was predominantly African-American. 
And when I moved there, one of the things that I realized is almost everything that I had learned about racial inequality and the divisions in America were based off of racist lies, uh, that my own cultural common sense couldn't make, couldn't understand what it was that I was witnessing. And so in America's Unholy Ghost, what I seek to do is to really analyze the ideas that had formed my common sense in a way uh, that had made me comfortable with racism for the for and racial divisions in America for my entire life. And so what I do in America's Unholy Ghost is try to do a deep analysis of how is it that American democracy and American Christianity was designed in such a way to harmonize first with slavery, but then to perpetuate racial divisions. Um, and so actually, I, the folks that I write on, uh, most of them come from England. <laughs> um, right, and okay. it's the oh, it's philosophers the of Brits, the Enlightenment. The Brits, yeah. the to blame, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. So uh, I, I refer to England as the original crime scene um, of the type of racial divisions that become incarnate within the American experience. And so uh, I, I deal with the the um, ideas of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Adam Smith, and I know Adam Smith isn't technically from <laughs> for, for, from England, uh, but how how it was that these ideas uh, touched ground in American soil. Um, what were those ideas? Question. Just to, just to precede them. Yeah. So one. So you know, in we often talk about the Enlightenment. And, you know, in the Enlightenment, how we understand the Enlightenment, it's the, is that it's the age of reason. Uh, but what is really going on is they're trying to respond to the wars of religion. And they have to do that in such a way um, that they have to rewrite how we think about politics and how we think about religion. And so the racial lies that I track in America's Unholy Ghost uh, are three political lies and three religious lies. The first political lie was that government is not about the common good. The role of government in the Enlightenment gets reduced to the preservation of property. So no more are we pursuing a healthy and a holistic community. What government's role is, is just to pass down wealth from one generation to the other. The second lie was that economics can be understood as a moral free math. And so when I went, went to uh, take economics classes uh, in America, what I got was grids and graphs, that economics was just a mathematical enterprise. And so we would talk about the gross domestic product, but we never talked about gross domestic poverty, right? And so we didn't talk about the real wealth allocation. Um, and then once you have a government that doesn't take care of folks and have that as their first priority or an economic system that really provides for everybody, what then becomes the role of the justice system? Well, in America, the role of the justice system became to brutally enforce the status quo. So justice is reduced to being retributive rather than restorative. Um, and yeah. uh, sets up the type of nation that, that America became. And you know what becomes critical in, in all this is for this thing to gain traction, it had to be sold to a Christian people. Um, as this, this thing really harmonizes with what you already believe. And in order to do that, what they had to do is change what Christianity was all about. And so there, there, there are religious lies woven throughout there as well uh, that, that begin forming America in a way um, that we become uh, the preeminent example of a racist society. 
so that so uh, racism for want of a better word is just is enshrined in the uh, american dna oh very much so very much uh enshrined in the american dna and i mean you know white supremacy is a disease that doesn't just touch your mind but it touches your heart your soul your spirit you know and so it touches your economic policies you know so when we think about racial inequality in America, but before I moved into an inner city community with deeply impoverished African-Americans, I already had an economic logic that could explain that racial difference, you know? And so every type of racial difference that we have- there So that was a subconscious bias, was that- sorry, I'm sorry? Was that a subconscious bias, you mean, in your um, mind? Carefully crafted bias. Okay. Um, so it, 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 uh, you know, there, there is this language of unconscious bias, but what became clear is that even though that might be an accurate description, the consciousness that we carried with us was intentionally uh, crafted to do the work that it did, you know. And so one of the things that became very clear to me, um, living in a very wealthy city, you know, Houston's the energy capital of the world, uh, so we have billionaires and bil number of billionaires, uh, but we have deeply poor people. And what I had to realize when I moved into an African-American community is that it wasn't that the system was broken. It was that the system was doing precisely the type of work that it was designed to do to begin with. Right, right. That's quite a profound statement. Yeah, uh, it's, it's tragic, you know. I mean, I mean, it is really tragic. And what ends up happening is that the white supremacy evolves in such a way that even though the outside structure may change, the work that it was designed to do is able to go through each American age, whether it is this age of slavery, the age of segregation, or what became known uh, to some extent as the colorblind age that produced racialized, perpetuated racialized poverty and radically increased uh, racialized imprisonment. So you, I mean, you must have been interested in the civil rights movement, I guess, in the civil rights era, yeah. though you're saying that that, um, yeah. Hasn't, yeah, <laughs> that journey is not complete, clearly. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, like, it's interesting how we think about uh, the civil rights movement, because the people who participated in it think that, thought that they were just beginning when the work was brought to an end. You know, and so what they re what what a lot of people who participated in the civil rights remember is how they were beaten up and bloodied. And once they got going, it went from an age of, uh, you know, in America, we talked about the civil rights, but but there was also what was called the war on poverty, um, where the American government, you know, dedicated itself. It was Lyndon B. Johnson in one of his State of the Union right. and declares an unconditional war on poverty. Well, what ends up happening very quickly is that that war of poverty ended up transferring uh, to a war on crime. Um, and the victims of the, the war on crime and the war on drugs were African-Americans. Um, and so even the ways that we remember the civil rights movement in America is a way that is completely out of step with the people who were on the streets and really paying the price to mm -hmm. transform our nation, you know? And of course, nothing, uh, there, there was no more successful attempt to misframe uh, America's civil rights movement than the work to misframe the work of Martin Luther King Jr. And you've, 
you've written, um, I, I realised I've, tu- I've turned our question order on its head. So if, yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, you, no, that's, no, that's fine. For anyone listening to this, just just go with it. Um, so you've written, Joel, I think, uh, how important MLK was, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr., was to yourself and many others. Uh, certainly you've referenced him, I, I can see in various times. Um, so... Uh, 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 just picking up what you said there, you know, wh- how how can you explain for us, especially over this side of the of the water, and and perhaps as the uh, uh, you know t- partly to blame for uh, setting all this in in train a few hundred years ago, <laughs> we did it, our own what, work once once, once <laughs> it got here. It certainly yeah. wasn't wasn't all, uh, all on y'all, <laughs> but y'all got the ball rolling. There's no doubt. Yeah, about no, that. sadly we did. Yeah. Um, so uh, what what do you mean there by um, he's the way he's been framed or he presumably mean his legacy. Right, right. His legacy. So what ends up happening is that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a revolutionary. And one of the things that I write about within the civil rights movement is this idea that progress happens in society in times of crisis, in times when our normal common sense is just not working. So like when you look at this, Progress that happens in the life of science, for instance. Galileo, Einstein, you know, these guys didn't bring about just small changes. They came at a time when the worldview was failing the world, and they provided a fundamentally different way to review the world that better aligned with reality, you know. And so rather than science being this uh, slow evolutionary progress, mm-hmm. progress is actually made by revolutionary steps. And in the political world and then in the racial world in America, MLK wasn't just, you know, this kind civil rights worker. You know, he was a genius and he was perhaps the only spiritual and political genius that America ever produced. Um, And he had a fundamentally different way of viewing the world that was absolutely revolutionary. And yet what ends up happening um, into our memories of him is our memories of him got reduced to nonviolence and it got reduced to his I have a dream speech and it completely ignored his radical call to restructure American society from the bottom up. Um, So he was all about ending the war in Vietnam. He was all about making reparations for African-Americans and he believed that America's health could not be divided from its pursuit of actual racial equality. And what ends up happening is that we start honoring King at the time in our nation's life where we began justifying even more radically the pursuit of kind of unfettered capitalism within the Reagan era. And Mm -hmm. so King is crafted in such a way that he can harmonize with the racism of the Republicans at the time, which was, you know, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, but then also the race, the racism of the Democrats that were following the same line, which became Bill the, Clinton um, and the new. Southern, Southern, sorry to interrupt you, Joel. Is this the yeah. uh, Southern strategy that people talk about how Reagan? Well, it actually goes beyond that. So the Southern strat- strategy was the ability of explicitly using racial, uh, call outs in order to get southern votes but what ends up happening in america is that there becomes a common ground on how to deal with these issues and so when we talk about 
the war on crime, for instance, that targeted African-Americans, when we went to war with the welfare state and started taking away, um, taking away uh, benefits from work, poor working families, that was actually a bipartisan effort that crossed regional divides. And so there was just kind of this, uh, I'm missing my words. I'm saying anonymity, okay. but it's unanimity. It went across both parties, basically. The, the, oh, yeah. Yeah. The, you, know, when, you know, when Trump arises in America, it is not simply the Republicans that had created Trump. It was the work of both parties and the way that they were shaping America that made that type of thing possible on our soils. So, um, yeah. uh, so, so just back to MLK then. Mm-hmm. So you're saying in, in some ways, do you think, there were, again, is that conscious or unconscious somehow elements of him got mm-hmm. what, frozen in aspect almost? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's down. a very intentional framing in order. So like, like one of the things that ends up happening is we had, you know, leaders like a Malcolm X or a Stokely Carmichael that were speaking about black power. Right. Yeah. And what racist leaders were able to do intentionally is to, to divide King from these other radicals. When the truth of the matter is, is that they were working together all along and they always had more in common with each other than they did the uh, white power structure. And so it was actually like King and, and Stokely Carmichael were very close to each other, you know. And so Stokely Carmichael, when King finally comes out against Vietnam, it is large part because of the influence of, of the young radicals uh, and Stokely Carmichael. You know? So that's so, often changed. The, the narrative there, that's interesting because yeah, even, it's a false narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Even just here, looking, looking at some of the background. So sometimes, mm-hmm. so King's organization mm-hmm. um, yeah. is um, sometimes, well, so he, he's sometimes portrayed, as you said, as the nonviolent leader and et cetera, et cetera. And right. Then, right. And that's why we other guys were more right? extreme. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. But he, yeah. he, he refused to condemn the riots mm. and he refused to condemn, condemn Stokely Carmichael. I mean, there's a reason why at King's funeral that Stokely Carmichael was one of the uh, main people that took care of Coretta Scott King during that time. You know, because right. they didn't agree on everything, but they grew, agreed on a lot of things. And the end goal for all of them was revolution. What was a racial revolution in America? Uh, that would bring about racial inequality. And so whether there are meaningful differences between X and Carmichael and King, and yet at the end of the day, they were trying to make Black Lives Matter in America. Um, and so like this, this idea that we can somehow separate King and make him safe, uh, this kind of the safe nonviolent guy is, is really is really uh, a tragedy um, because what he was committed to at the end of the day was black equality. And he would say that the right is the voice of the, un- of the unhurt, you know, mm. um, and he understood why they were happening. Um, and they had very tangible ways of addressing what was going on. Uh, and yet America ignored them. And then after ignoring the message, claimed them as their own. Um, so also, um, I guess we can leap forwards or backwards at this point. I was going to yeah. talk about Emmett Till and his motive, but um, you right, just reminded right. me well, about... I think he's, you know, he, Emmett Till sets the ground for the civil rights movement. You know, to explain so, who, who, who he was. And yeah, what, Emmett Till was a young man. Um, his family had fled Mississippi and migrated up to Chicago 
He was an African American. Yeah, African American young man. He he uh, his his mom leave leaves Chicago or leaves Mississippi, heads up to Chicago, and yet they still have family down in Mississippi. And one of the things that was very common in those days is for kids to go back to Mississippi in the summer. Okay. Well, he heads back to Mississippi. He ends up becoming a, a victim of lynching. Men kill him, uh, torture him, kill him, maim him, and place his body in a river. Um, what ends up happening is, is that they discover the, you know, when his mom gets the call that her son had been kidnapped, she begins working the lines. Her name, her name is Mammy, Mammy Bradley at that point. Um, and she begins working the lines, really trying to push, uh, to take what's going on in Mississippi out of the darkness and into the light. Um, and when they discover the body, she's able to outmaneuver Mississippi because Mississippi wanted to place them in, into the ground immediately. They get the body of Chicago and she holds an open casket funeral for her son and what she demands to happen is for the world to witness what america does to its children because what mammy bradley was convinced of is that the people that had murdered her son it wasn't just the hands that had taken his life it was the whole american society that allowed this type of violence to go unchecked and unchallenged right right because because it's rampant in america his his killers eventually i think Face trial, but were face trial, and they were released. Were released, which um, sort of got shades of that. What's to kill a mockingbird, isn't it? Uh, right, right. It's very, you know, it's uh, well, it's it's a, it's a grotesque. Um, you know, lynching became a way. Uh, you know, when we think of the era of segregation, you know, what we often think of in America are colored only signs. But the truth is, is that the real racial symbol of that age wasn't the colored only signs; it was the lynch. Uh, where they publicly crucified people and tortured them yeah. in order to maintain both a segregated way of life, but also to keep African-Americans at the bottom of the total pole within that segregation. Joe, we're talking uh, about, uh, we're talking about thousands of African-Americans. Thousands. Over, yeah. Yeah. Like it's about over a long period of time. Between but... four to 5,000, but, but they were orchestrated in such a way where it wasn't about creating the highest body count. What lynchings were about were creating a state of mind within African-Americans that would keep them frozen and in their place. Mm. It was about stealing their businesses. It was about stealing their property. And it was about keeping people terrorized. You know, so 9-11 was not about producing the highest possible body count. It was about creating the fear and the insecurity and the, you know, um, only, you know, you had, you had thousands of people that died there, but it changed the nation. Lynching is a very similar form of terrorism that defined life in America uh, on both sides. Uh, and yet what Mammy, Mammy Bradley does is she opens the casket and she forces millions upon millions of people to witness what they did to their son. You know, because he, he was, was horribly he, disfigured. Well, he was horribly disfigured. He was, yeah. and she wouldn't allow the undertaker to, to touch him up. Um, and the and he provides the image that inspires the civil rights movement. And so it was a lynching, not just colored only signs, that becomes the inspiration for the civil rights work. And so we have Rosa Parks. When you have a lot of these other folks, the first what gets them involved are the images that they see 
of Emmett Till. Was it um, 1955? Yeah, in 1955. And then that thing just explodes. And it's interesting because he's four, you know, he's only he's only uh, 14 years old when he's killed. And yet some a lot of people will refer to the civil rights workers who sometimes were older than him as the as the children of Emmett Till, because he was still the inspiration behind uh, so much of the work that made made the work so furious within those years. Have you managed yourself to speak to anyone who was active during that period? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this history is still very much with us, you know, and so I mean, I've known people that have were work working on MLK's executive committee for his Southern Christian leadership conference, you know, know, know a lot of people that knew him personally. Um, and you know, that, that generation is still with us today. Uh, at least, at least much of it is, um, and how, how, it shows you, you how close it is. Well, I was going to say, you, um, you've talked about the, the kind of broader context about the, the sort mm-hmm. of the attempt to, um, you know, new, neuter, if you like, MLK's yeah. Uh, yeah. legacy, etc. You know, uh, but those people that you've spoken to or met in your work, then who were active with him, then or what? Mm-hmm. You know, what have they said? What have they said to you about you know their views of that time, but also the the current situation or whatever you last spoke to them with contemporary events? Yeah, you know, it is. You know, a lot of what I think has been shaped by those men. You know, and so, um, you know, the, you know, we had a gathering of Christian ministers here in Houston, um, you know, African-American gathering. And many of those men, their most formative experiences were the lynching era, you know, like this is what formed their political imagination. Um, They were, you know, most of that era was deeply inspired uh, by MLK and in many ways, he becomes the radical radicalizing voice within within their own nation, uh, and you know what what is clear is that they they believe America has rejected MLK, not not that they've not that uh, we've embraced him. What we wanted to do was to hold on to King and hold on to racial inequalities and everything that has devo- defined the American way of life. But you can't have both; uh, it, it's either or. There's something you you touched on in your work um i think is is how divided the american church and american christians are right um which i find fascinating um in dealing with many christians here in the in the uk um and uh yeah it seems incredible it seems difficult to understand uh mm-hmm. here you know the, the, the idea of jesus's you know message including potentially being a revolutionary as well but sure. would also love etc you know some of the principles yeah, not yeah. being rolled out universally mm-hmm. um so does is it christians or is it the church that mm-hmm. lies at the heart of of problems uh racial problems in america yeah i mean it, i mean i think people can bicker on what the definitions of those things are right and so like there you know there there is a fight that that you know white conservatives love to have and, and liberals love to have on the question of whether or not america is a christian nation um you know i i have always found that to be pretty uninteresting uh, because I think that the question that we had to wrestle with is what type of Christianity has America had, um, particularly within the white church and the type of Christianity that America has always had 
was a was a Christianity that was very comfortable with the institution of slavery. Um, and so, like when when you study the history of uh, European Christianity, um, you know what becomes clear is that a great tragedy has taken place. And we have uh, here the term of cultural appropriation. Do y'all, do y'all have that term in e- England? Are you familiar with that at all? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, so like the idea is, is like, you know, a white girl that takes on dreadlocks and yet doesn't ever stand in solidarity with the fight for racial justice or this. You know, they just appropriate the style without standing in solidarity. And really a lot of what has happened in the history of Christianity is that we had a religious appropriation that happened to where oppressive people took a slave religion and used it for their own ends, you know? And so like when you look at the slave ships, for instance, uh, during the slave trade, they would be named Jesus, the evangelist, the Trinity, you know? And what had happened is that, is that oppressors took Christianity and repurposed it for their own use. Um, And yet one of the great historical ironies that ends up happening is that black people in America are introduced to Christianity, but re- repurpose Christianity more to its own original intent. And so what, what I talk about in the book is the prophetic black church, which is the, which is the tradition that shapes Martin Luther King Jr. And the church in, uh, after the fall of slavery, what the black church became is it became a place, one for religious education, it became the place for education. It became the place uh, for political leadership and the development of a political imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it became a holistic uh, beachhead in the fight against white supremacy. Um, whereas within the white church, Christianity was reduced predominantly to uh, soul salvation. Um, you know, Christianity within a European context becomes you know, very much like the Enlightenment, it becomes a part of the life of the mind to where as long as you know the right formulas, you're good to go, regardless of what your relationships in the world look like. Yes, um, yeah, it's, so. you, you've written very powerfully on that, I think, and, and I, I find it fascinating. Now, what, what happens when you uh, talk uh, either, either, you know, publicly about your writings or privately, um, I'm guessing it sometimes yeah. leads to some uncomfortable <laughs> discussions. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. One, one of the things, you know, that, you know, I mean, at least what, what my style is, is that, you know, you, you, you speak where you're asked to speak, you know, <laughs> and, okay. and you can have the conversation. So I usually don't feel the need to, to really push this on folks unless it's my family or, you know, those awkward conversations. Um, but, you know, there really is a different response along the color line. Okay. Um, within, within a lot of African-American circles uh, that I have heard from, I am writing about stuff that they had felt all of their life, but they haven't seen it excavated in the way that my book did in the way that my, so, so like one of my, one of my close friends was like, finally, I know I'm not crazy. I can see where, you know, I can see where, where the stuff comes from to where, when that message goes over to the color line, um, within whether white secular communities or white religious communities, it is more what I've been told all my life is a lie um, or, or much 
of what I've been told about race and inequality in America in this history, I've, I, I never received the full story. And so you have to wrestle with that type of inheritance. And so it does different works on, um, on different sides of the color line. So do, do you think during the civil rights era and beyond the, the, if I can crudely call it the white church or white Christians, have, have they been challenged enough on understanding well, these contexts? That's quite a broad yeah, Wait. no, I think that they haven't, you know, but one of the things I am clear about in the book is that the problem wasn't just the Christians, you know, that for every, you know, the racial sciences had a huge, huge impact on racism in America. And so to be white in America and to be right on the racial question, you know, you can't, if you're, if you're a white Christian and you want to get right on the racial question, you go secular you find yourself in a different racist camp that did different things towards the same ends. And so I think one of the things I do want to be clear of is that the problems extended far beyond, far beyond re religious enclaves, whether okay. you were white and Christian or white and an atheist, you had more in common with each other than you did with Martin Luther King Jr. Who was a black Christian uh, as far as what your worldview is, what your anticipation is. Um, and so I want to I want to make sure that it's not just a sacred secular divide. I mean, you know, Darwin, those guys. I mean, they they were about the evolution of white supremacy. I mean, that that was what drove their project. But today in America, you know, our churches are ten times more segregated than the communities that they sit in. You know, why is that the case? That is the case because they are celebrating Christianity in such a way that historically always harmonized with racial injustice. Um, and uh, that is the well from which, which we, have, we have drank for years and years. And, you know, to kind of get into, you know, for instance, there was a Southern Baptist president of a seminary who, who he, you know, today he supports Trump, you know, only a few years ago, he was saying that Harriet Tubman was sinning when she was freeing slaves. Right, um, right, yes. You know, and yeah. I don't have any interest in demonizing him. I think, I think the question that we have to wrestle with is what type of communities do we have that can produce that type of thinking? Right. Um, when I'm around, when I'm around, uh, you know, more secular white elites. You know, what secular white elites have known for sure is they've never had to learn from African-Americans to know what was right politically and scientifically and religiously and racially. You know, um, to me, Bill Maher is every bit as racist as this uh, who, who's a secular kind of voice, you know, white voice here that talks about how dumb religion is. And I'm like, you know, MLK is not exactly a dummy. You know, the grandmothers I'm going to church with, they're not dummies. You know, um, how is it that you can write off so many African-American folks and think that, you know, you're intellectually superior, you know? And so whether the superiority was religious or whether it was intellectual, um, you know, what cons white conservatives and white liberals have always had in common is the ability to know the truth without knowing black people. That's interesting. I mean, the the perennial question then is how, how do we bridge the divides? How do, how do we take on the journey that yeah. started before yeah. the civil rights era, obviously was accelerated through it, but clearly yeah. <laughs> Trump and yeah. beyond is, is carrying on today. 
You know, yeah, what, yeah. What, what is the is it community activism? Well, is it political? The, you know, the good news is we're in crisis. Um, so. Okay, <laughs> oh, that produces change, right? That's yeah, what it yeah. Well, it has. It opens the door. It opens the opportunity. Okay. And you know, one of the things I'll be talking about in my next book, next book, next book on reparation, is that the world has never lacked answers to our racial problems. It's just simply that we ignored the voices who had the most common sense and realistic approaches to it because they were black. I mean. Before there was a uh, Mammy Bradley Till, there was an Ida B. Wells. And what was Ida B. Wells doing? She was trying to open the caskets of the victims of white supremacy and make America feel what was going on and to know themselves by the work that they were doing on African-Americans. Before there's Ida B. Wells, you know, there's Frederick Douglass. Before Frederick Douglass, there's Nat Turner, you know, I mean, and so we've always had these voices with us um, that we had the opportunity to listen to. And I think today the question becomes, you know, particularly in the American context, and I don't know how it tra would translate to England, is what does it look like to begin honestly dealing with what the caskets of Black lives contain? What does it do, look like to really begin opening the caskets of the people who let out in white supremacy and deal with the price that African-Americans have had to pay since the creation of slavery in the colonial experiment? Well, I was going to share um, something with you um, yeah. on that point. Yeah. In Just in the UK context, obviously, it's a lot smaller than, than you guys. But mm -hmm. um, last summer, I think it was, uh, a few months ago, anyway, we had a uh, sort of backlash against various sort of statues and public buildings, things sure. that, that were yeah. erected in the memory of people yeah. who had slave uh, slavery yeah. connections, yeah. Um, because they established themselves as philanthropists or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, always. Victorian era or the pre-Victorian era, you know, running yeah. up to the Victorian era. Um, so we had that. We, I don't know if that happened there. I know you had the Black Lives Matter movement. And here, no, we had we had the same thing because, you know, okay. one of the things that followed the Civil War in America is that we started celebrating the, con the Confederate generals, you know. And so uh, we put Confederate general monuments, you know, throughout. Was that a more recent? That wasn't direct. It was, am I right in thinking that wasn't necessarily straight after the Civil War? But yeah, that was... so you had about a 30 year gap, you know, and right. so what you had what you have going on in America at that point is fight over what the memory of the war was all about. Um, and in order to make sure that we knew the South was on the right side, despite us living. So like for those in England who are not familiar with Houston, Houston is a southern city. Um, but, you know, to make sure that we knew we were on the right side is we started venerating uh the southern generals the leaders the white white leaders of southern society uh right, right. and renaming what the war was all about until we lost the legacy of slavery altogether you know so and that was the it, that was the aim was to yeah it, it, oh, well, yeah. i was going to say to whitewash no pun intended but yeah, to, to sort was. of to yeah, dilute right the, Right. And, and that's not just a Southern thing. Right. I mean, that is that is very much an American way of de de dealing with history. And, you know, one of the things Thomas Hobbes, uh, you know, from your yep. from your homeland, one of the things that he makes very clear is, is that, you know, if you're going to have a society that is unified, what you've got to do is you've got to forget the sins of your forebearers in order that, for you to live faithfully to them. And I think part of what we deal with, you know, whether it's the mismemory of the civil rights or the civil war or how we got into the crisis to begin with, 
is we've got we've got to start beginning to feel the freedom of naming our sins as clearly as possible in order that we don't repeat them, you know, and the idea of telling history from the perspective of the oppressed isn't to kind of create the self-hate within white people, but it's actual or, or kind of this monastic self, self-fidelization of, of this, we're horrible, we're horrible. But yeah. it, it is the work of creating a self-awareness so that the sins of our parent, of our forebears, we don't pass into the future into our children. Uh, and it is, it is, it is really hard to navigate uh, the crisis that we face today when we have no understanding of how we got to where we're at, you know, and so that's going to be education. That's going to be, it's, it's got to, you know, I mean, understanding history. Uh, one of the things that African-Americans have all have argued. Um, and, and this, of course, I'm, I'm painting in a broad, broad, broad stroke, but I'm thinking specifically of Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. uh, the mainstay, um, the main river within the African-American tradition is that our problems are as spiritual as they are political. You know, that your politics is, is representative of your spiritual state. Um, you know, when, I, when we write about reparations and think about reparations, you know, part of that is economic. Part of that is educational. Part of it is confessional. That there were holistic issues that has led our world to where it is today. And to respond to those in a healthy way is going to be a, uh, is a, it has to be a holistic response. Um, a long-term response. Uh, and so like when I think about opening the caskets and kind of sitting within, within the horror of what we find, I think it's in those ways that we begin finding ways out, you know, and maybe one of the things, you know, historically that was really important to me um, was America's mission to the moon. And there was a speech writer called unifying people. Well, it had it named the goal and okay. so what what kennedy said in a very famous speech if we choose choose to go to the moon we don't know how we're going to defeat gravity it's going to be very exper- expensive there's going to be failures along the way but we're going to learn from our failures and at the end of the day we're going to go to the moon and that was kind of the formula that they used to drive politically what they were doing and that same speech writer actually crafted the war on poverty speech where he says, you know, we don't know how, we don't know all of the answers to the problems that we're going to face, but we're going to declare a war on poverty and we're not going to end the war until there is equality. So what ends up becoming very clear in America is that our commitment to defeat gravity was much deeper than our commitment uh, to defeat racism. Um, And uh, if, if the, if the um, mission to the moon had been of one political party, uh, you, don't, you don't get there, you know, but we literally showed that we could use government dollars to defeat gra- gravity, make spaceships and walk on the moon. Uh, and yet in America, we still don't have the ability to feed hungry children, to educate children, to, to do this because we, we have fundamentally lacked the political will. Um, and so yeah. the question has always been political will. Um, you get you get space force instead. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I'm being funny, yeah, but that, yeah. that is that is what what you get. You get. I guess in Reagan's era, you had uh, like, what was it? They same thing. The missile system. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, like Reagan was not afraid of using government dollars. He just refused to use government dollars to help out poor folks. Poor folks were the problem. You know, so yeah. um, it was becomes. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is it is a really tragic history. And even when we think of reparations in every age in America's life, we've talked about reparations and we've paid reparations. You know, I mean, England, y'all did reparations, but y'all paid the enslavers. Right. Yeah. I, I had right. abolition. You didn't pay. You didn't pay the slaves. You paid the enslavers. America had the same type of public policies going on that actually passed through Congress. When we think about the victims of lynching, uh, there were there were immigrants that we lynched. We paid reparations to those nations for the immigrants that we, we lynched. And then once you get into Reagan, you know, we paid reparations to Japanese Americans uh, for their suffering that we inflicted upon them during World War Two when, when we did yes. the internment yeah. camps. Um, and so reparations are not uh, are not unheard of. Uh, they're they're very commonplace, both within America, within England, and in other places. Of the that, that's the topic. That's the subject. Of, I'm glad you're talking about this. That's the subject of your uh, your new book. Yeah, uh, which yeah. you title I think is going to be titled "We Birth of a Nation." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, are you arguing for a literal reparations? Oh, absolutely, or... absolutely. But but you know okay. the work. Again, you know, as, as I said earlier, the work isn't just simply economic. You know, I mean, I'm not talking. Am I talking about cutting paychecks to African Americans? Absolutely, I'm talking about that. Uh, but it has to be more than that. You know, we have we have to change the way that we think about politics, the way that we think about economics, the way that we remember our history. You know, uh, the leading white supremacist um, in American history, as far as, as far as creating the ideas, is Thomas Jefferson. Um, so the man who wrote. All men are created equal. Also, wrote strong, another. that's a strong statement, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I mean, I think historically, it's it is. He was a slave owner. Is that right? He was a slave owner, and not only was he a slave owner, but he, you know, he's known for the for the Declaration of Independence. But after writing that, he writes notes on the state of Virginia, and what he argues of why slavery is needed is uh, black people. There's something wrong with their sex lives. There's something wrong with their families. He says that they are naturally lazy and dependent upon others. He says that they are less than brilliant. Um, and those become the lies that, se- separ- uh, that really shape white supremacy in every generation in America's life. And so like he will talk about you know, the need for emancipation, but he will do it in such a way where it never becomes a reality within his lifetime. And he actually supports dividing the union over the question of slavery. Um, it later on in his life. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, he was very committed white supremacist. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a very committed white supremacist as well. So he was anti-slavery, but he was also against abolition. Uh, and he was also very formed by anti-black black racism. Um, Link, and they're not the same people, you know. Uh, Lincoln is a very different moral person than what Jefferson is, uh, at least in, in, in my reading of Lincoln and Jefferson. Um, so how do, we, how do we how do we bridge that divide though? Going back, I mean, this is fascinating. But yeah, in the modern era, um, we seem to have such divides. And looking at the the recent election you've had, uh-huh. and, and obviously the last four years, mm-hmm. uh, um, we're in the realm of politics and sure, sure. now firmly. But the, the, leading up to last before that last four years, clearly there were conditions in place that you know a yeah. number of people, predominantly white, felt very angry, upset, lost, yeah, whatever. Yeah. To, and some of them presumably believe themselves to be quite strong practicing Christians yeah. ended up voting for someone who uh, clearly yeah. didn't seem to embody much of yeah. Jesus has got, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, life in his, in, in his, the way he carried out his, you know, his sure. activities. So sure. 
how are you going to bridge that? How are you going to get people to listen? Because if we're only talking in silos, no matter if we produce books or do podcasts mm-hmm. or right, activism, right. you know, one of the things that I write about very clearly um, in America's Unholy Ghost that I see as being being a fundamental problem is that the way that we think about the world uh, is so shaped by relationships. And so when you look at the crisis that we're in and the way that we think about things, part of that crisis is the legacy of, of segregation, where we fundamentally lack the relationships that we need in order to think about these things in holistic terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I certainly don't have any definitive answers uh, for how we begin healing things. Uh, but I know historically that big changes can happen very quickly. When you, when you look at the Civil War, for instance, there was very realistic opportunities to end racial inequality and end uh, segregation right there within the Civil War. But the way that we put our nation back together, we did it in such a way that intentionally under, under wrote white supremacy. When we look at the Civil Rights Movement, there's no reason today that America should have had the type of racial inequalities that it did, but we ended up rejecting the work of the civil rights movement um, and pursuing the colorblind age uh, and the war on poverty and the uh, or the war the war on drugs and the and the war against the welfare state and that has created the context and so one of the things you know that we have to have to learn we have to and looking into the hopelessness of the situation that we're in, you know, and opening the caskets and feeling the weight of that hopelessness. Um, the most hopeful tradition has been in, on American soils has come from the African-American community. And the reason for, and, and it's a different type of hope. It's not a, it's a, it's not a hope rooted in optimism, but it's a hope rooted in the reality that our future is shaped by the struggle of today. You know, there, there is no anti-racist future by a silver bullet, you know? And so in, when you're facing a problem that has no silver bullet, the question becomes is how do you stay in the saddle? You know, how do, how do you stay in the work? How do you keep on going after failures? How do you learn from the past and the way that things fell apart earlier in order to create uh, a different future tomorrow? Um, and so there's brilliant work being done. You know, there, there's brilliant work being done and the future can be fundamentally different if we listen to the right voices. Uh, and yet the brilliance that is being done is being done on both sides of the divide. Those who are fighting to make a, to keep America as is and to perpetuate the, the sickness and those who are working to make fundamental changes. Um, and so I'd say like over the next few, few years, uh, you know, I think we have to be careful who we follow. Um, and we have to be ready to pay some very high prices in order to pass a very different future on to the children uh, that we're raising today. Joel, Joel Goza, this has been a fascinating discussion. Joel is the author of America's Unholy Ghosts, and he has a new book coming out soon called Rebirth of a Nation, Reparations and Making an Anti-Racist America. Joel, thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, it's been an honor to be with you, Nick. Thank you for your time.